0: Chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. Those who wish to follow along in the pew Bibles can please turn to page one four four. I'm sorry, one fourteen, one one four in the New Testament. Let us listen for what the Spirit is saying to us today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. May God add understanding to our hearing of the word. Wasn't the music wonderful? What a gift, what a gift to have that level of musicianship uh, in our presence. So uh, I forgot to name Andrew and Natalia being guests this morning as well, but uh, they have been with us before and they will I'm sure be with us again. With my Lutheran background, with my Lutheran-yutheran, I have uh, often quoted Martin Luther as saying that John 3.16 is the little gospel. I found out I'm not quite getting that quote right. What Martin Luther said of John 3.16 is it is the heart of the Bible, the gospel in miniature. The idea, I didn't get the words exactly right. It is, for many people, everything we need to know about the good news. I would say particularly everything we need to know as the way John expresses it. We will be talking about this verse, but we'll be talking about it also as an expression of this particular gospel. It is common to approach this verse, because it is so essential, so important to people, to approach it just word by word. If you wanna read a whole book about this verse, you can read Max Lucado's 316, not even John, 316. And uh, it is a, a one that does that. So I want to do a little bit of that here this morning as well to invite us to think about what p- many people uh, view as maybe the essential verse. Uh, the one, if you have memorized one beyond Jesus wept, you have probably memorized some version of this. As a matter of fact, it probably bugs you that our translation is a little different than what you memorized, yeah. Uh, uh, so let's think about this. Let's th- Break it down and think about it. They seem obvious, but it begins with God. God is the actor. God is the mover. God is the one who initiates what goes on here. Indeed, one of the most important questions we can ask when we are reading the Bible is, what is God doing? We can ask that of passages where God may not even be mentioned, but may still be doing something, may have inspired something, you see. But certainly passages that name God, we do well to ask, well, what is God doing here? What is God initiating? How is God acting? How is the God, what is the God, what is God the source of? And here we know the verb is love, right? The subject is God, the verb is love. In this case, loved, God has loved, God has expressed self in the act of love. It is who God is. It is what God has done. If we are looking at what God is doing in the passage, if we are trying to take that higher view, that 30,000 foot view, the answer to that question in this verse is love, the subject, the verb, and then the object of that love is the world. Which, if we know something about the Gospel of John, should actually be surprising. The Gospel of John talks about the world over and over and over. 79 times, by my count, the word world appears in the Gospel of John, and it is almost always negative. The world is the place that is hostile. The world is a place that rejects God. The world is a place that needs light, that doesn't know God We as followers are invited to hate our lives in this world. And we are also given the promise that Jesus has overcome the world. The world is a negative place in the Gospel of John, so it says something all the more that it is the object of God's love. God loved the world. God loved the place that is a place of rejection and hostility, of need of corruption. This is what God has loved. And that the world has that character in the Gospel of John, and that the world is the object of God's love, tells us something right there, right here, about God. Now we know there is a way of expressing, there is a way that that love is expressed very specifically in this verse. God so loved the world, had so much love, that intensifier, that indicator that the love is particular, that the love is intense. God so loved the world that God gave Christian love. The word is agape in Greek. Christian love always involves, at its profoundest level, giving. The giving of self. The giving of that which is essential. That particular word for love is expressive of an offering, of a giving. And in this case, it is the giving of one who is identified as God's son. It is giving represented in a person who has a particular and unique relationship with God. I did one Greek word, agape. A lot of you already know that, but can I do just one more? mono okay. Monogene. Compound word. Mono, we know that. We say it, we use it in our own language, in English. Mono means one, or in this case, only. Gene is like genesis, generate, right? Genetic, the source of a place where it comes from, the begatting, right? So we can say only begotten. Our translation leaves out begotten. I think it shouldn't, because it's there. But it's not about DNA. It's not about somehow uh, some kind of physical expression uh, of that particular relationship. It is a generating unique love that is a metaphor for that uniqueness. Now, a lot of people would stop here. They would say that's the basic message. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's that's all we really need to know. Uh, But in English, we put a comma in. We say, but wait, there's more. There's purpose, there is direction, there is uh, something that comes out of an outcome to that particular love. Uh, we indicate so that there is purpose here. There is an expression that will come out of this love, a result that is desired from this love. So that, we are told, everyone who believes so that something expected Everyone who believes, belief is a consistent verb in the Gospel of John. It is mentioned over and over. It is twice stated as the reason the Gospel was written, so that you might believe, and believing, have life in Jesus' name. We are told, uh, life, we would write it with a capital L, or Abundant life, the gospel says that at one point, or eternal life. They're all interchangeable in this gospel. The one who believes, everyone who believes. Um, Belief. But it's not just a mental assent, this belief. It's not just something where we sign off on a doctrine or we join a team or we express something in theory. Belief is expressed in how we live, in what we risk, in who we are and in whose we are. And belief, the verse says, is particular. Everyone who believes in him, in the Son, in this particular unique relationship, Everyone who believes is connected to this person. And then there are blessings that come out of that belief, right? Those who believe in him may not perish. I can say a lot about that, but I think it's particularly expressed in a life without fear. I listen to a podcast. If you hear people always talking about podcasts and you don't do it because you don't have an hour for it, there is a great podcast, I think, very interesting. It's called 10 Things That Scare Me. And it's usually about five minutes long. You have five minutes, don't you? Try it out. It's just people, all kinds of people, just normal, everyday people and sometimes fairly well-known people, but all of them simply listing 10 things that scare them. Sometimes they give a few reasons. Sometimes they don't. But you know what makes the list all kinds of times? Death, fear of death. Death scares them, death scares us. And the promise here is a life where at least that fear is diminished. More than once I have spoken to somebody in a hospital who was very sick or who was going in for a procedure that they might not come out of. And more than once, I have been told this is scary, and of course it's scary, it is a frightening situation, but I have also had people tell me in a very believable way, however this goes, I'm okay. Whatever happens, if I don't come out of the surgery, I'm okay, if I do come out of the surgery, I'm okay. If this illness is unto death, I'm okay, because they understood that whatever it was that was afflicting them was not going to completely extinguish them. This first blessing is that we might live life at least diminished in that fear. Look, it's reasonable to be afraid of death. I would never say to anybody, be completely absent that fear, it's not reasonable. But my goodness, to have it diminished. And I have seen faithful people as they approach death, less and less afraid of it. A promise. A promise of something that won't be so strong in life because the second promise of something that is strong. Life, life in its fullness. Life with a capital L. Life that is abundant. Life that exceeds time. All these terms, interchangeable. A fellow named Frederick Biekner wrote uh, a book long time ago, like 40 years ago almost, called Wishful Thinking A Theological ABC. He just takes certain terms and has a couple paragraphs to talk about them. And in this book, he gives what I think is the best definition, the best consideration of eternal life that I have heard. Can I read it for you? When you are with somebody you love, you have little, if any, sense of the passage of time. And you also have, in the fullest sense of the phrase, a good time. When you are with God, you have something like the same experience. The biblical term for the experience is eternal life. Another term is heaven. Inhabitants of time that we are, we stand on such occasions with one foot in eternity. God, as Isaiah says, inhabits eternity, but stands with one foot in time. The part of time where God stands most particularly is Christ. And thus, in Christ, we catch a glimpse of what eternity is all about what God is all about, and what we ourselves are all about. We think of eternal life, if we think of it at all, as what happens when life ends. We would do better to think of it as what happens when life begins. Isn't that lovely? It's an old book, you can still buy it. A lot of Christians would end here. A lot of Christians do. They just say, John 3, 16, all you need to know. But context, you know, context is valuable. If we were really doing context, I would encourage us to just sit here all day long, miss the game, and read all 21 chapters of John. That's what I would do. But at least, at least a little bit more a little bit farther, one verse more, which I think for a lot of people confirms the essential nature of John 3.16 and for a lot of other people uh, brings something else to the consideration of that verse. It brings uh, a clarification in the negative. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. God is about love, not condemnation. That's the clarification. God is about this, not about that. God's purpose is to love, God's purpose is not to condemn. Those two reinforce one another. Condemnation works against the cause of love. And, brothers and sisters, the world has plenty of condemnation in it already, does it not? We, are, we know, we know, we can hardly turn the box on, but somebody is condemning somebody else for something that they have done, something they have said, something they believe, some side that they are on, some team that they are playing on. The 49ers will be condemning the Chiefs and back and forth. Other people will say it's very weird that we have Chiefs and 49ers, but, yeah. The world also has a lot of self-condemnation. That thing within, if not all of us, a lot of us, that says, you are not loved, you are not lovable. You are not worthy of love. Maybe, maybe some kind of loop that somebody else put in, maybe something about human nature where there's just that, that thing of fear that brings us to that place where we feel as though we might be rejected, where we may feel as though we are not the object of love, nor are we worthy. For the world has plenty of condemnation. And for that matter, John 3, 18 to 20 has something to say about that. We won't go there right now. But for many people, this adds something important to what it means that God so loved the world because God did not send the Son to condemn. A lot of Christians would stop here. Because the church, Christianity, has this image of being part of the condemnation. A lot of you, a lot of Christians, I know, would just stop here. Uh, You know, God did not send the Son to condemn the world, but it's not the whole sentence. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, comma. There is more here as well. There is something else to be said more to the sentence, more to the purpose. I understand and I'm sympathetic with the mindset that would say, let's just stop without condemnation. Let's just not worry about that. But there's more. There's more. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. That the world might be saved. That this hostile place that rejects God might be saved. That this place might be rescued. Same word, rescued, saved. That it might receive those promises. Saved from hostility and futility. Saved for fullness and abundance. Please note that this is not individual salvation. Please note that it's not what we started teaching in the Protestant church uh, a little over 100 years ago, that uh, you need Jesus to be your personal Savior. Personal Savior is not a phrase that is in the Bible. It is not a concept that is in the Bible. Salvation in the Bible is collective, systemic, contextual, environmental, global. When individuals receive redemption and salvation in Scripture, it is always indicative of a larger desire of God's that all would be redeemed, that the world would be saved. So, uh, Zacchaeus is saved. But then Jesus says, because I came to seek and save the lost. He represents the lost. It is important, it is powerful that he receives something, but it's also indicative of God's desire to bring in all of those who are caught up in what the world is about. That the world would be saved. That the world would be rescued. And we're invited to ponder, what would a saved world look like? What would a rescued world, what would a redeemed world look like? What would it be like to live in a world like that? Please note also that it is the world might be saved through him. This touches on an issue of essence that in some ways divides the church. I understand there are many Christians for whom it is essential that everyone become a Christian. Everyone needs to become a Christian in order to be the object of that love of God that leads us to not perish but have eternal life. That is important. It is defining. It is central. It is essential for many Christians. and they probably have 316 on their side. I also understand that for many Christians, that is a remarkably difficult concept. It is hard to receive this idea that people that are not even known to the Gospel of John are somehow subject to a rejection of God if they don't believe. That is a very difficult concept. It is almost essential to some of us that God not be about condemnation and exclusion. We aren't going to work that out here. Now, I'm certainly not going to do it in front of you. It's dangerous just to name that division of essentials, isn't it? Because I know some of you, the one essential is crucial. And for some of you, the other one is. But here's what I want to say whether or not you believe that everyone has to be a Christian, can we simply assert that Christians should be Christian? Hmm? That our understanding of God comes through Jesus Christ, that we receive what God has to offer through him. We point to Jesus. We move through Jesus. We claim him as the source of that life. That God has to offer. Could that be. The essential. That we all hold.